You're listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Payal Nanavati, and today we're going to talk about the very recent Supreme Court decision, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, in which the Supreme Court addressed the rights of gay and transgender individuals under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. We are specifically going to discuss the implications of the ruling for anti-discrimination provisions of Title IX as incorporated into the Affordable Care Act. And in particular, HHS's revisions to the ACA's Section 1557 non-discrimination regulations that were issued just a few days before the Supreme Court decision was published. For today's conversation, we are joined by Amanda DeSanto, an associate in Kroll's Labor and Employment Group, as well as our very own Joe Records, who is joining us as a guest rather than my co-host for this episode, given the work he's been doing to analyze HHS's recent regulations. So let's start out the conversation with a little background on Section 1557. Thanks, Pyle. I'm very excited to join you from this side of the figurative table. Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act prohibits discrimination in health care by incorporating by reference four existing federal non-discrimination laws. And I will rattle those off in a moment, but keep in mind that the key phrase here is that these laws are incorporated by reference. So it's not just the statutory provisions that the ACA adopted, but the bodies of interpretation that came along with those. The incorporated laws are Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, and put a pin in that one, we're going to come back to that, the Age Discrimination Act of 1975, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. So collectively, those four non-discrimination laws prohibit discrimination on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, age, and disability in healthcare. In 2016, HHS promulgated regulations that brought everything under one umbrella for 1557 non-discrimination purposes. Those regs applied expansively. Procedural requirements like compliance personnel, notices, taglines were required, and there were also some substantive expansions for the protections under the non-discrimination laws. Of key importance for our discussion today, the 2016 rules expressly and expansively defined discrimination on the basis of sex to include, quote, discrimination on the basis of pregnancy, false pregnancy, termination of pregnancy, or recovery therefrom, childbirth or related medical conditions, sex stereotyping, and gender identity, end quote. That was a big step, and it arguably advanced the non-discrimination requirements beyond the Title IX statutory framework that Section 1557 incorporated, or at least the statutory framework as we understood it at the time. The 2020 rule, among many other things, scales that back. So the Monday following HHS's final rule that, among other things, removed gender identity, sex stereotyping, and termination of pregnancy from discrimination on the basis of sex under Title IX, The Supreme Court issued its Bostock decision, which addressed discrimination against gay and transgender individuals under Title VII. Amanda, can you talk to us about the significance of that case? Sure thing, Kyle. Bostock is a pretty significant decision, both in terms of civil rights and for us labor and employment nerds. In essence, the Supreme Court ruled that firing someone because of their sexual orientation or transgender status violates Title VII. Joe, I think you and Pyle alluded to this, but Title VII is the civil rights statute that prohibits discrimination in employment. In broad strokes, Title VII prohibits discrimination in employment because of race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. So this case was really a ruling on whether discrimination against gay or transgender employees is sex discrimination, which the court ruled it was. 
And the Bostock decision was actually the result of three different cases from three different appeals court decisions, right? That's right. The three cases were Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, Altitude Express versus Zarda, and RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So Bostock was on appeal from the 11th Circuit and involved an employee who worked as a child welfare advocate for Clayton County, Georgia, and was fired for, quote, unbecoming conduct after he participated in a gay softball league. Altitude Express was on appeal from the Second Circuit and dealt with an employee who mentioned he was gay to his employer and several days later was fired. Finally, R.G. and G.R. Harris Funeral Homes was an appeal from the Sixth Circuit and involved an employee, Amy Stevens, who presented as a male when she was hired by the funeral home and was later terminated after she told the funeral home that she was going to live and work as a full-time woman. Each employee brought suit under Title VII, alleging unlawful discrimination on the basis of sex. At the Court of Appeals level, the Second and Eleventh Circuit reached different conclusions as to whether Title VII covered discrimination based on sexual orientation. The Second Circuit concluded it did, while the Eleventh Circuit concluded it didn't. The Sixth Circuit, meanwhile, found that Title VII bars employers from firing employees based on transgendered status. The Supreme Court granted cert in each of these cases to resolve the split in the circuit courts over the scope of Title VII's protection for gay and transgender persons. In a 6-3 opinion authored by Justice Gorsuch, the Supreme Court ruled that the prohibition against sex discrimination under Title VII applies to gay and transgendered individuals. Now, a lot has been made of the 6-3 split in the justices voting. Oftentimes, the Supreme Court cases split 5-4 down a fairly ideological line, but here Justice Gorsuch, who's largely considered a conservative justice, and Roberts joined Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Breyer in the majority. And maybe more surprising to some, Justice Gorsuch authored the opinion. And how did Justice Gorsuch end up getting to the conclusion that the prohibition against sex discrimination under Title VII applies to gay and transgendered individuals. What was the basis of his ruling? Sure. Justice Gorsuch is a textualist, which means that he feels that people are entitled to rely on the law as written without fearing that courts might disregard its plain terms based on some extra textual consideration. And that's a direct quote from Justice Gorsuch's opinion. And this opinion is pretty textualisty. First, the employees conceded for argument's sake, and the court proceeded on the assumption that the term sex refers only to biological distinctions between male and female. Where the real meat of the decision is, as Justice Gorsuch noted, is that the decision wasn't about what sex means in isolation, but rather what Title VII says about it. In other words, Justice Gorsuch analyzed what it means that Title VII prohibits employers from taking certain actions because of sex. The vast majority of the opinion is devoted to explaining that Title VII's prohibitions on employers taking certain actions because of sex translates to a prohibition on employment discrimination against transgendered and gay employees. In essence, the court relied on a plain read of the statute without looking at things like legislative history and argued that no ambiguity exists about how Title VII's terms apply to the facts. So, Joe, how will the people who want to challenge the HHS regs that came out a few days before? use this decision to advance their argument. Believe it or not, Pyle, people have already challenged this rule in the District of DC, seeking invalidation of the rule and an injunction against its enforcement. Of course, we're watching closely to see what happens there. 
to zoom out and give you some idea of the scope of controversy here, the 2016 non-discrimination rules that HHS promulgated were controversial. They generated something like 25,000 comments, which is a big number for a regulation. This more recent proposal, which it was a proposed rule last June of 2019 and then finalized on June 12, 2020, that brought in 200,000 comments and an order of magnitude greater. So a lot of those comments address this issue and some comments implicitly or explicitly threaten litigation against HHS if the regs were finalized as written, which they essentially were. It's important to keep in mind when we're thinking about challenges against these regs that these new 1557 regulations did a lot. Today we're talking about the specific potential conflict between the, the 1557 regulations and the new Supreme Court decision on, on sex discrimination, but these new final rules effectively rewrote the 1557 regulatory scheme. There are reductions of regulatory burdens. I mentioned notices, taglines, um, compliance personnel. Those kinds of changes are focused on the procedural aspects of, of implementing non-discrimination and have nothing to do with the substance of, of sex discrimination protections. And importantly, I think the change here was more like an omission. It wasn't an omission, it was a deletion of a, a regulation that existed, but it was scaling back from the expansive definition that was affirmatively promulgated in 2016 simply to repeal that definition and not to replace it with a more limited definition. So by expanding the statutory understanding of what constitutes sex discrimination, I think Bostock provides ammunition to those who would challenge the reasoning underlying the rule by expanding the scope of the incorporated statutory protection. With almost any federal rulemaking, you can anticipate some Administrative Procedure Act and some statutory interpretation arguments here, somewhat uniquely, I think there's an argument that the limitations set forth in the final rule on Friday, June 12th, don't matter because the statutory protection expanded on Monday, June 15th. Okay, so what are some limitations to the so-called ammunition that Bostock provides to people who want to challenge the HHS regs? I think it's worth highlighting a couple of points for the purposes of this conversation. First, Bostock was decided under Title VII. Title VII has commonalities with, but is not the same as Title IX, which protects people from discrimination based on sex and education programs or activities receiving federal financial assistance. Second, Title VII bans discrimination because of sex, while Title IX bans discrimination on the basis of sex. So those two statutes actually contain slightly different language vis-a-vis -vis sex discrimination. That being said, to me, this is really a distinction without a difference. And I think the Supreme Court might find this to be a distinction without a difference as well. In fact, the majority opinion uses the phrasing on the basis of multiple times throughout the opinion. Also, the dissent in Bostock, right around footnote 57, references what we're thinking about in this podcast today, which is the impact of this decision on health care benefits. And one thing that really stood out to me in the department's rule was the line that, and I'm going to quote from the rule here, at the same time, as explained below, the binary biological character of sex, which is ultimately grounded in genetics, takes on special importance in the health context. Those implications might not be fully addressed by future Title VII rulings, even if the court were to deem the categories of sexual orientation or gender identity to be encompassed by the prohibition on sex discrimination in Title VII. I think this language read with the benefit of the Bostock decision as a lens basically seems like the department anticipated that the definition of sex in the opinion might remain grounded in the biological differences between men and women as a group, 
and that if the decision afforded protections to transgender and gay employees, that the decision would turn on what the statute says about sex and not the term sex itself. So I read the department's language here as seeking to leave open alternate interpretations of sex discrimination based on all the other words in Section 1557. Are there any other issues that could throw a wrench in the application of Vostok? I think so. There's a statutory exemption in Title VII, which provides exemptions for certain religious organizations and schools with respect to the employment of individuals of a particular religion to perform work connected with the carrying on of the activities of the organization or school, as well as a First Amendment-based ministerial exemption, the scope of which has been explored and is still being explored at the Supreme Court. There's also the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, or RIFRA, and per the Bostock majority opinion, and I'll quote Justice Gorsuch directly here again, RIFRA operates as a kind of super statute displacing the normal operation of other federal laws. It might supersede Title VII commands in appropriate cases. And what that means to me is that there's an outstanding question of what will be the religious exemptions to the general thrust of the Bostock decision. So it sounds like a religious organization might still want to take the position that under the statutory exemption in Title VII, RIFRA, and maybe even the First Amendment, its religious beliefs with respect to sexual orientation supersede the Title VII prohibition against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And that's still an open question that will likely be litigated down the road. What happens now for entities that want to comply with federal law? I think it's crucial that healthcare entities that are subject to Section 1557 or have been subject to it revisit at this time their compliance infrastructure and their processes and the decisions that have been made under the 2016 regulations. The final regulations are out and it looks for all the world like they will take effect on schedule in August. They'll apply for the 2021 plan year. So providers, plans, other companies and healthcare entities that receive federal financial assistance from HHS for programs and activities that they operate need to prepare for the application of these regs. Nevertheless, the reasoning behind this facet of the 1557 rules has been called deeply into question by the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock. So I think entities that are subject to Section 1557 will need to take a look at their specific circumstances to consider what, if anything, that means for their operations. Practically speaking, if the new rule stands, entities could potentially change their practices or, or their coverage because the non-discrimination requirements have been loosened. But if they do so, they risk being found to have violated the statutory law, specifically Title IX, as incorporated by Section 1557, if it is subsequently interpreted along the same lines as we've discussed under Title VII. Entities should be sure, of course, to check with their lawyers before making any changes, and at least for now, it may be prudent to avoid making changes based on the elimination of the definition that includes sexual orientation and and gender identity from the protected categories under the new rule, because the word sex in the statute could be interpreted to include those terms. The big question here concerns those other parts of the regulation. So I'm talking about the procedural aspects that have nothing to do with the scope of prohibited sex discrimination. For a lot of healthcare entities, the legally safest path forward might be to take no action, that is to carry on complying with the 2016 regulations as if these rules were never finalized. But there are real costs associated with issuing notices and and the similar procedural requirements that have been eliminated. 
ironically, I think this regulation creates some burden for regulated entities because they'll need to initiate some high-level strategic discussions to determine whether and to what extent policies, procedures, and practices should be changed in reliance on a rule that's on shaky ground and under attack. All right, I think we'll leave it there. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast.